This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, which is co-hosted by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I am Duncan Macargo. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. Today's going to be a really fascinating conversation, I think. It's one I've been looking forward to a lot because we're going to be talking to uh, an old friend of mine, Alan Hicken, a professor of political science at the University of Michigan, who's an expert on politics of Thailand and, and of Southeast Asia. And this time we're talking about a new book project he's been involved with. The book's not actually out yet, so it's not exactly entirely a book event, but it's a book-related event. So the book is called, I believe, Money and Machines Mobilizing for Elections in, in Southeast Asia. So Alan, welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here and thanks for having me. Um, I, uh, for your audience, uh, Duncan's always been very kind to me when I was a graduate student. I emailed him out of the blue about Thailand and he uh, actually uh, deigned to respond and give me all, all this advice about how to work in Thailand. So I'm grateful to, to be here chatting with you. Well, that's fantastic. Alan's told me that story. You've told me that story before, Alan, but I, I have to confess, I don't have any specific recollection of this email. I'm going to have to search. I do have a very large number of undeleted emails. So one day I'll search uh, back and see if I can verify that story. This book that you've been working on, this is not just your own project, is it? You've been collaborating with a team of people in this multi-country project to look at money politics across Southeast Asia. So maybe you could fill us in a bit about what kind of project this is and, and, and who's been involved in it and what you've been up to. Sure. Um, the, uh, the project started actually, the idea behind the project started about uh, almost 10 years ago. Um, uh, Meredith Weiss, who's a Malaysianist, mm -hmm. uh, uh, worked on social movements uh, in, in, in Malaysia and also Singapore. Ed Aspinall, who works on Indonesia. And I were we were we were together at a conference, uh, Association for Asian Studies conference, uh, and had were sitting around, uh, chatting about what uh, what we were working on. And realized we were all kind of interested in questions related to the role of money mm -hmm. in electoral politics. Everything from the use of pork barrel and patronage to vote buying to sort of retail, everyday clientelism, money first, medicine and cement and a new a new floor, a bag of rice, uh, and we were particularly interested in the strategies that candidates and parties use to appeal to voters. So. So, uh, and how that varies by the characteristics of the electoral contest, uh, the location, is it different in Malaysia and Indonesia and the Philippines and Thailand? Is it different within countries across locales? Does, how has this evolved over time? <clears throat> and how do vote, how, how do candidates, how do, how do their, their campaigns, how do they decide who they're gonna target, right? Who, who they're gonna mobilize? Um, are there differences in how candidates mix strategies, the kinds of machines they build? And then from the voter perspective, I was interested in what's guiding voters' decisions when they mm. vote. When they walk into the voting booth, when they walk to the polling place, what are they thinking about, right? Uh, is it ethnic religious affiliations? Is it, is it policy platforms? Is it party labels? Is it family ties? Is it these enduring clientelist relationships that we hear so much about? Is it cash or goods? Mm. So we were trying to figure out how to get at this question in a comparative way because most of this most of this work in this area is country specific, which makes a lot of sense. It takes a lot of resources to do this well and a lot of time and, and local knowledge. We wanted to do this in a comparative way. So we brought in Paul Hutchcroft, who works in the Philippines, and we came up with this multi-year, multi-country, multi-method, mm. uh, huge project that's been, that's sort of consumed 10 years of our lives uh, that kind of had 
uh, I guess, four main components. We had in each country a series of national surveys. We had focus group interviews with voters and with brokers. And then we had uh, local and broker surveys in some of the countries. Uh, so we, yep. uh, you know, we got brokers and voter lists. And then we had probably the most interesting piece, I guess, to me was uh, in each country, you organized a team of about 40 researchers. Mm -hmm. So a mix of graduate students and faculty partnering with local institutions in those countries. And we trained and, and then had distributed them throughout each country uh, around elections. They spent between two and four weeks in the field prior to elections, interviewing candidates, campaign mm -hmm. staff, showing candidates, uh, shadowing candidates, attending campaign events, et cetera. So that's the kind of scope of the project. And they, they looked at national and local elections in each country to the extent those were there. Um, uh, and the initial plan was to do Malaysia, Philippines, uh, Indonesia, and Thailand. So this was Australian funded. That's right. Yeah. So that was part, the yeah. other the other challenge. Yeah, it was Australian. Yes. We tried NSF. No luck with NSF. Right. So. right. And and what's your bit in all this? Because there's, so, there's so much going on in what you describe. What did you personally uh, get up to as part of the project? Yeah. Um, so I was initially brought on. Uh, we initially conceived of each of us kind of being the point person for a country. So I was mm -hmm. organizing all the Thailand stuff. In fact, yep. I arrived in Thailand on the day of the coup to organize Indeed. our, our <laughs> election, uh, yep. our big election study in Thailand. That didn't happen. Uh, so I ended up doing a lot of the, the point work on the Philippines because Paul had to step mm -hmm. away for for a little while for some professional stuff. Right. Uh, so I was I was. I organized a lot of the Philippines stuff. I, I edited the volume we have in the Philippines, or co-edited, uh, was lead editor for that. Um, and then I was kind of in charge of thinking about surveys and experiments, although that mm -hmm. was a very collaborative process. Yes. And then all of us and spent time individually and together in each of the countries around elections, interviewing candidates, interviewing brokers, and then interviewing outside of the electoral calendar as well. So we did uh, as uh, personally as a, you know either individually or as a team dozens of interviews across these countries and then as a large team including all the field researchers about 3,000 interviews wow um, yeah this is an uh, amazingly uh, ambitious project so we, we really have to be looking forward to the the book to see what it is exactly that you've come up with here we, you know we I don't know if we if we'd understood going in how how big it was going to be mm -hmm. and how challenging you know we, we should have figured out the training and managing all these researchers was going to right. be amazingly rewarding but also a huge challenge sounds like a bit of a nightmare yeah but yeah. uh yeah. yes okay so all we can really do in a short conversation like this is sketch out a few of the, the key highlights and um you know, we social scientists love to coin terms and we, use, we have to make use of terms. And of course, what hits me between the eyes right away when I start looking at your introduction is, some, is these compound words with the, with the words um, particularism at the end. So one of the, the first ones you start with is micro particularism. I guess when I was looking at it, it sounded a bit like, I mean, I did write an article about vote buying many mm -hmm. years ago, which you quite nicely, kindly cited in your introduction. Is, is micro particularism anything dramatically different from what some of us used to call vote buying? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, you're right. In colloquially, like we, we often use, mm. I, I, I use vote buying as a sort of shorthand for a lot of what right. we're talking about. Yeah. But um, the, uh, for, we wanted to separate out the activity so that who is targeted and the nature of the handout from the motivation behind it. And yes. And vote buying, as I'll talk about in a second, kind of implies a particular motivation, a particular strategic goal. Mm -hmm. So for us, micro-particularism just refers to handouts that are targeted at individuals and households, right? So it's small stuff, cash goods, uh, you know, rice uh, formats, building materials, services, 
bill paying or our medical mm -hmm. access to medical care. And then we distinguish that from meso particularism, macro particularism, which we could talk about. Right. Um, and we often shorthand, I'll just, I'll just refer to all that as sort of vote buying, but in the, in the larger sort of social science, political science literature, vote buying technically refers to a, specific sort of strategy right it's mm -hmm. it's targeting yep. resources to undecided voters or weak opponents right and right. the idea is this is somehow contingent right i give this to you uh, you know if, 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 you know drawing mm -hmm. on this sort of this, this this literature on clientelism right that this is uh an expected uh there's expected reciprocity here and that in, as part of that yep. there's monitoring enforcement and it's it's uh contrasted with terms like uh, turnout buying where i try and mm -hmm. get my own supporters to show up or abstention right. buying where i try and get the po i pay the opponents to stay home and again the, the 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 assumption with all three of these is that this is a contingent relationship right this is this that, that mm -hmm. i give you this and you're going to then uh, reciprocate or I'm going to yeah. punish you in some way, right? right? So that means I've got to figure out some way to monitor and enforce. And there's been a lot of ink spilled in the literature okay. trying to figure out how that happens, right? Is yes. it, sure. do I violate the secret ballot? Do, are there, you know, do I use social, activate social norms? Do I do net, use dense social networks? Right. Um, but what we were seeing uh, in, in Southeast Asia is that um, candidates were often doing what, something else, right? That this was, they were giving handouts that looked a lot like sort of, classic vote buying, right. but there was very little investment in monitoring and enforcement. Sure. Um, there was very, uh, even when they, they often had no idea what voters did with that money. And even when they did find out, they were, they expressed that they were unwilling or unable to punish them. Uh, right. They defected. Right. And voters, for the most part, with some important exceptions, voters said they felt really no obligation uh, right. and had no right. fear of being punished if, if, if the candidate found out how they voted and they, they voted the wrong way. Yes. So it, see, it seems something different. So we have our own terms that, again, multiplying terms here, but we talk about brand building and credibility buying and turf right. protection as, as these right. other things that candidates are doing that look a lot like vote buying, but don't imply this kind of contract almost between a voter and a, a candidate. Right. Okay. Well, we look forward to seeing some more examples. I think I, I always thought of vote buying as being obviously much more complicated than the, just the, literally yeah. the handing over the cash directly for the vote. But I, I see how trying to broaden out the concept gives you a little bit more analytical purchase on the range of different activities that, that come under that heading. Now, mm -hmm. macro particularism. Now, this, to me, the way you describe it, I mean, Malaysia seems to be the obvious example, something like the 1MDB project. How far does that differ from, because the, the big term at the moment is populism. Lots of talk about that in the Thai context too, with Taksin's economic policies. What's the difference between macro particularism and some kind of populist economic policy that attempts to lock people into a, a kind of long-term contractual relationship with a ruling party? Yeah, that's a great question. For our purposes, I, I think of macro particularism is somewhat orthogonal to the issue mm -hmm. of populism, first of all, because it's not clear to me, actually, we have, that we have a good definition of what makes a populist a Well, right, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Beyond the, the, the populist policies where my opponent proposed and, I, yep. and the, the policies right. are good and righteous and moral are what I propose. But, so what we're trying to get at here particularly, is, so it's not just, so parties have you know, policies they perform all the time that are designed to, to drum up support. For these macro particularistic policies that we, we say politicians hijack, what we're really interested in are policies that are ostensibly national in scope, not targeted narrow constituencies. So one MDB mm -hmm. may be a good example. And we do see a lot of this in Malaysia, but where politicians then try and assert themselves in between the policy and the recipient, right? Mm -hmm. So they work to make the policy appear as if the distribution of, a, of a, this national good or national service is actually due to their actions. They want to personalize yep. it in some way. Right. 
so they can credit claim, you know, at, now this we see is everywhere, this is ubiquitous in the world, right? But politicians oh, yeah. show up at every bridge opening and hospital expansion and scholarship program to be there to right. hand out the award, even right. if they had nothing to do with it. That's pretty innocuous. But then there's also facilitation where there's a program, but politicians actually put in the effort, constituency service to kind of connect their mm -hmm. voters with that program. And then we've got um, actual, and this is particularly predominant in the Philippines in our cases, where na essentially national programs are kind of carved up and then politicians mm -hmm. are the ones who distribute them. Right? Yep, yep. And so again, the idea is to try and make this appear like the politicians have some discretion that as a voter getting these goods or these services are somehow uh, contingent on mm -hmm the goodwill and the support of this politician. Yep. I think I can, I kind of understand the micro and the macro, mm -hmm. but the, the miso particular, <laughs> <laughs> there I am floundering slightly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, perhaps for so, the benefit of our listeners, you can explain that because you seem to have an awful lot of these categories. Um, well, so you, know, you can think of just you know small, medium, and large. Just kind indeed, of the way to, right? Yeah, yeah. Way to think about it. So right. the, the the stuff, the, the meso stuff is, um, and the the terms you know we, we use the, the term meso to kind of distinguish mm. the two, but really we're talking about things like club goods, pork, yes. local public goods. Um, so these are these are things. Uh, these are patronage, uh, patronage that's directed at groups of voters. So mm -hmm. villages, you know, new road, a hospital upgrade, uh, social or religious or occupational groups. So uh, a new roof for the mosque, or sewing machines for a women's group, or, or uniforms for a sports team. Uh, so it's it's stuff that that you, you target to collective groups, um, but is uh, still targetable to specific collective groups, not to the to the, the, the whole polity. And they, one of the interesting things about what, you know, so why go through all this uh, multiplication mm. of terms and why do all this? I mean, part of it is right. we really do see really interesting variations across our cases in, kind of, in terms of the mix of things that they use, right? So mm. Malaysia is all about macro particularism and national policies, right. as you mentioned, sort right. of centered around a ruling party sure. and really, uh, you know, drawing on state funds, right? There's this fusion of party and state. Indonesia, we get we get lots of micro particularism, some meso particularism, right. but but mostly just around elections and mm -hmm. often using private resources. Right. Um, uh, they don't have they they they're not they don't have access to state coffers. And the Philippines is kind of in between. We got rampant micro and meso, uh, both between and during elections, and a mix of private and uh, mm -hmm. public funds. So. Um, it, 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 we, we wanted to kind of understand, again, what these mixes of strategies that politicians are using, what they, if, with their broad patterns across the countries, and what things influence the choice of those strategies, right? Why, you know, why this mix in this country and this mix in another country, for example? Yeah. I mean, from my own limited escapades in, in, in these areas, I've always been incredibly dissatisfied with most of the terms being used, especially when mm -hmm. people start talking about patron-client relations and patrimonialism. And, and one of my PhD students, Anya Chetrakun, who's just written a book mm -hmm. with me about the Future Forward Party, when she did her field work in Thai elections, mm -hmm. What she was finding all the time was that the kind of ideas that we have from stereotypes about these relationships are very far from reality because she discovered that a lot of the voters, especially the voters who were organized into any sort of community-based groups, had incredible bargaining power with the politicians. And it was rather hard to say who was actually calling the shots in these relationships much of the time. Is that a, a phenomenon that you came across in many of the cases that you looked at? Yeah, that, that was actually definitely one of the motivations for, mm. for me, at least, for this project, right? So, I mean, 
um, you hear, particularly when I present in Bangkok, right, I'll, I'll often hear, you know, the first question I get after talking about elections is, you know, what about vote buy, right? Mm -hmm. And, and there's the sort of assumption that the, the votes and voters' dis decisions are, are just a product of mm -hmm. vote buying or clientelism or something. Yes. And, uh, and, you know, the, you know Prayut's quote, these people only go vote to go to vote because they're paid, right? That kind, right, of, right, that kind right. of idea. And it robs voters of their agency. So I wanted to, I, that was one of my, my goals, to figure out what is this relationship, right? Is there this kind of uh, perverse accountability where voters are, mm. are uh, where it's actually politicians that hold voters accountable rather than, than vice versa. And we found that actually, much like your student, uh, this is this, in general, voters have a lot of agency, right? They, yes. they, they, they make demands for politicians, they expect them to respond. And in fact, sometimes we were quite sympathetic to, to politicians and candidates who right. bemoaned the fact that they were, you know, anybody who showed up asking for something, they had to do it. They, 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 right. so they, a, a lot of their time spent request filling to the extent that you know, around election time, you'd go to a candidate's house and there'd be a line down the street yep. of people waiting to come get breakfast, right? Or come right. get help with this or... Yep. Um, so, so we found that voters weren't captive sheep being led around by money generally, uh, nearly in part because nearly all politicians are engaging this practice. There's a market for right. this, right? Uh, voters can and do accept multiple offers and they often take the money and run, right? So in Indonesia, one small study we did, only 25% of the vote buying actually turned into a vote for that particular candidate, mm -hmm. right? So voters had a lot of uh, agency and exercise a lot of agency. And we didn't see, there are exceptions, right? So places where there was a lot of coercion, uh, that agency is less, right? So in places yep. in Southern Philippines and Mindanao, right. Right. Uh, places where there were voters are meshed in, in social religious hierarchies that are, that are um, uh, cohesive and, and, and strict hierarchies, there's less agency there on the part of individual voters. Mm -hmm. uh, but in general, this was not voters who were, who otherwise would not have thought of voting for a candidate and suddenly with a, mm. you know, with a 500 bot, you know, um, bill right. dangled in front of their face and right. changed their minds, right? In, in part because candidates in every country, their first priority is their own supporters, right? Yes. That's, that's who they're giving money to already. So it's not, you know, so it's people who are already predisposed, at least nominally, mm -hmm. to vote for uh, that right. candidate. So they're not, we don't find a lot of evidence of people changing their minds. Some, yes. but not a lot. Yeah. So it's really, the, I mean, I guess the, the moral of the whole thing is it's complicated and the more you dig deep, the more complicated it becomes. And when you have a massive project like this with teams and teams of assistants and comparing different countries across a period of time, the complexity of it just, just starts to get bigger and bigger. Uh, yeah. And the challenge of writing it up must, must be quite significant. Yeah, one of the, I, you're exactly right. I mean, I have probably more questions than when I started, um, mm -hmm. which is, you know, <laughs> right. which is great. Yeah, lots of, lots of ideas and things to do. Um, and part of this, part of the reason we wanted a big project though, is we, we knew this, this was a very complex, very multi-layered, um, rich thing to study. Uh, and so we wanted to have a big team that, and so we, ha we have dozens and dozens of publications, uh, most not by us, but by other right. members of, the, of yes. the team, looking at little aspects of this or big aspects right. of this comparative, you know, right. some, some comparative, some uh, local sort of case studies. Yes. So lots of ways you can cut into this, this animal, right? And sort right. of think about how, yep. uh, how these things are, but it is a challenge to kind of think, then to go back up to the more macro level and think, how do these, what are the big themes? How do these things tie together? And you know, we, we're trying to do this in the book, and I think we're getting to a place we're happy with, but it's certainly been a challenge to go yes. back and forth between the forest and the trees. Right. So for, 
people who are listening to this podcast and trying to, to get an idea of, of what you're talking about, was there some moment, perhaps during the fieldwork or some part of this research process where you had a kind of a half feeling, you know, something, could you, could you give us a story about something that happened that would shed some light on the kind of things that you found extremely interesting and that emerged from doing this project? Yeah, I guess one that immediately you know, jumps to mind is, so I, I worried empirically about uh, just how we're going to do this, right? Would, mm -hmm. would, would voters talk about this? Would candidates talk about this? Mm. It, you know, it's just, it's just how much of this is all done in the shadows? Like you and I, like you, I'd done some work in this before, um, but I just wasn't sure. Uh, in fact, we initially, we designed all these things that, that were that, that assumed that this was, that people were going to lie, right? That they right. were, that they, they, that's right. a social desirability bias. Oh no, this doesn't happen. Other people do this, but not me, right? And right. so we were, I was really worried about that. And, and so there, very early on, um, I think mm. this is 2013, I was in the Philippines mm. interviewing a, uh, with, uh, with Paul Hutchcroft, interviewing a, a local candidate for office there. And um, we were sitting in his, kind of his, his patio, his veranda, as streams of his brokers are coming in to pick up packages of noodles. And he, he emphasized he was giving out the good fancy Chinese kind, not the local Filipino mm -hmm. kind, that to, to picking up yep. you know, these packages and taking right. them to the, to the voters. And then he sat us down and he, he, you know, he snapped his fingers and called to one of his assistants and brought us a bunch of sample ballots. Um, so in mm -hmm. the Philippines, the, the sort of the modus operandi for handing out money to voters uh, is you generally you get a sample ballot that you mm -hmm. prepare or the, the team yep. prepares with your name in big bold letters uh, yep. that you staple staple money to that or attach money to that right. that's what you give to voters so he brings out these three sample ballots uh, and he gives us a sort of master class on how to do this right so yes. he, he holds up one from his, one of his opponents he says and the money it's it's actually I think it was about 500 pesos and it's a 500 peso note stapled to the back Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, rookie mistake, right? You, you know, they, um, it's, it's one denomination that, you know, it's a big denomination, but it looks, it's only one bill and a staple in the back where you're not going to see the name, right? Why, you know, it's, right. it's this wasted effort. So he pulls out another one. He says another, another opponent, he said, and it's 300 pesos this time, all stapled on top of each other on the front of the bill, uh, front of the, the ballot. He says better, but the, the money is stacked on the top of each other. So you can't immediately see how much it is. Right. That's a right. problem. So then yep. he pulls out the, the, another ballot, which of course is his, this is the, this right. is the good, this is a good example. And it's got 300 pesos again, but it's fanned across the front of the ballot. So you can see, you know, yep. a very, very appealing picture. It's, it's fanned all the way across. You can see how much it is. And then his name is right below the money in big, bold letters, you know, you know, who's giving you this, uh, okay. this money. Yep. And that, at that moment, I realized this, people might actually talk about this stuff, right? This was, the, and we found yes. that candidates and brokers were actually really willing to talk about it in great detail. Mm -hmm. They were willing to right. share, share the lists of voters they were targeting. Uh, they yes. were, uh, and for voters, it carried very little social stigma. So we did all these fancy experiments that have been designed in places like in, in Latin America, Middle East, uh, assuming that voters are going to lie about this when you ask them did they you know did they accept mm -hmm. money for their vote uh that they'll lie and so we have these fancy experiments we found that in the philippines and and indonesia at least almost no social stigma whether you ask them directly right. or right. with these sort of sort of these these these, these right. fancy experiments right um, have any of your friends ever done this yeah yeah or or there's these <laughs> list experiments where you know where you can ask sensitive items and anyway right. it, the, yep. the percentages are almost exactly the same right that moment was oh we could we can be more direct. We can be more bold in how we're yes. doing this, and we can expect more of ourselves and our researchers mm -hmm. than we than we had uh, believed we might be able to do. So that was that was a particularly sort of enlightening moment for me. 
Right. That's a really I've got great a dozen more I could talk yeah, about. That's a really but, great uh, example. Yeah, that, that of course, I, I've had these experiences too, but now's not the time mm -hmm. for us to, to trade stories of people <laughs> revealing this kind of information to us. But yes, I know yeah. exactly where you're coming from. If you had to tell us what the most important takeaways were from this ambitious project, which is a, a challenging question, given how big a project it is and how mm -hmm. much has been going on, what would you say would be the, the top tips let me give you the top tips. So I think first, as we kind of applied, implied before, a lot of the behavior that scholars and commentators treat as sort of classical examples of contingency-based clientelism mm -hmm. is in fact not this stuff, right? The, right. the, the models that we have in mind that are built, built on these sort of classic patron-client style relationships and, yep. and sort of ported over into to, to these voting behaviors, that doesn't work very well. That translation right. doesn't, is, is fraught. So yep. it, these are the problematic behaviors for other reasons, but it's not this kind of, con most of it's not this kind of contingency-based clientelism that we've been sort of predisposed to mm -hmm. sort of look for. The, it may look like this on the surface, but when we dig down, that's not really what's going on, it seems. Right. Uh, the second is, I think, that, um, uh, that we, one of the things we emphasize in the book is that the types of mobilization networks that politicians have at their disposal really shapes the kinds of strategies they, they employ. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that we find that candidates and voters are, are actually really flexible and adapt, and again, not surprisingly, perhaps, they, they adapt their strategies, they take advantage of the resources available to them and the constraints they face. And again, perhaps fairly obvious, but I think it's important because that is explicitly not a cultural argument. So there's mm -hmm. nothing written in stone in the Philippines or Malaysia or Indonesia or Thai culture per se that makes clientelism or vote buying a foregone conclusion, right? Candidates right. and voters right. can and do change their behavior when they're presented with incentives to do so. So that I guess leads to the, the last uh, one or two takeaways. How much of this is a problem, right? This is, yep. uh, this is yeah, something- Yeah, does it matter? That, that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, on the, on, the, on the one side, we found very little evidence of this sort of perverse reverse accountability. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to measure, but we don't get a sense that this is wildly changing outcomes. Again, mm -hmm. only about a third to a, a third to 40% of voters in the countries that we studied are getting these offers in Indonesia and the Philippines. Supporters get it first, a lot of them defect. Uh, and this is a chance for voters to get something back from the state. This is how they talk about it, right? This right. is, is yep. when it rains, right? This is we finally are able to, to get yeah, yeah. get our due. Yep. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it does distort politicians' incentives, right? They In in some cases, this it, it, this is very expensive. In many cases, it feeds uh, corruption and kickbacks, and you know, politicians have to raise uh, funds to be able to do these kinds of things. Uh, and it is perhaps inefficient, right? Public goods get undersupplied. Uh, you know, there's an overemphasis on targetable policies and resources rather than national uh, things for which politicians claim credit. Mm -hmm. um, so there are costs, but I do think there's some, our, our work has some implications about what kinds of reforms would most likely bear fruit, right? None of them mm -hmm. are easy, um, but there are things that can be done. So one is reduce voter vulnerability. Right, that their need for them to return to, to to turn to elected politicians to help with their problems. Yep. Right, so things like uh, CCT, uh, conditional class transfer schemes, things that that mm -hmm. are independent mm -hmm. of uh, yep. that, that that raise voters' welfare, uh, and also decrease politicians' discretion. Right, so yes. anything that that decreases the the politicians' ability to turn the spigot on or off, or exercise right. their own their own discretion, their own autonomy, um, and then finally things that. Um, make um, micro or meso particularism too costly, too expensive. So when you have mm -hmm. really large constituencies, in the Philippines, we found it very interesting that the higher up, the, once, once you get beyond the congressional races, senators mm -hmm. and presidents don't do these things because they're too expensive, right? There's right. They, they do less of them anyway. And, uh, and, and as you get, start to get large national parties, these, become, these things become, the mix of things starts to change and stronger political parties 
can capture more of the benefits from national policies, and this is some of your work, uh, you know, here as well. That, that suddenly starts to become worthwhile to to have and campaign on party platforms, party promises, whether it's a thirty-bot healthcare scheme or a conditional cash transfer scheme or whatever. Once parties become strong and national, or stronger and national, more national, those kinds of rewards. That, that, the mix of stuff starts to shift a little bit. Doesn't mean that the other stuff disappears, but there's new rewards for for emphasizing national policies. So those, I guess, those, those are three or four takeaways yes. or, or tunes to hum as you, right. as you finish the book. Yeah. So when are we to expect the the book itself? Uh, we're hoping to have it submitted this summer, and so uh, if all goes well, hopefully by the end of the year, early next, we'll uh, we'll have it in print, sitting in the sitting on a book uh, bookshelf near you. That's wonderful. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, I have a, a long-standing interest in this topic, as you know, Alan, and it's great that you've been able to to work with such a really, I should say, for those who don't realize, this is an absolute top team of people in terms of their level of expertise in these countries. So we have high expectations for what this uh, book project is going to deliver in terms of telling us and, and really giving us a pretty definitive explanation of so many of these these issues. Well, we hope to be able to speak to, uh, you're, you're exactly right in the team. It's been a, one of the most rewarding experiences of my professional life working right. with these folks. And, and right. uh, But also, I just want to emphasize the the our local partners right in absolutely each, in each country, yes these, absolutely uh, the, the, that's been such such a rewarding experience to, to work and co-author and interact with really top-notch scholars in all four of these countries where we're hoping to speak to southeast asia audiences uh country specific audiences yep. political science audiences and that's a, as, you, as you know that's a difficult road to, to walk right. we'll see if we're successful but it's been rewarding uh, for us anyway we've, we've learned yeah. a lot this is great well, thanks very much, Alan. It's thanks been fantastic for having me to have you on the Nordic Asia podcast. This is the Nordic Asia podcast you've been listening to. Um, I'm Duncan McCargo, director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. Thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to the next episode. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.